This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Anthony Johnston. And I'm Brian Latendry, and today we are listening to the 2015 Lamb of God album, and I hope I pronounce this correctly, Sturm und Drang. Sturm und Drang, yeah, that's about right, yeah, yeah. That's probably as close as I'm going to get. It, it's uh, it's an old German phrase. I think literally it means storm and stress. That is exactly what it means, and, and uh, sort of the building up to kind of an explosion. So sort right, of the, the right. con- almost like the the churning before the the storm, if you will. Yeah, it's one it's one of those German words that, like you know, sort of literally translated. You realize it's still a metaphor. It's like Blitzkrieg, which I think literally means lightning war. Well, obviously, yeah. you know, that, that's not a literal thing, but you can understand the metaphor. So, yep, and obviously, very timely. Uh, you know, a title for that album, given the circumstances around it, which we will get into in a few minutes. Indeed, indeed. All right, so let's do a little bit of follow-up. Uh, four new patrons since our last episode. Uh, I'll try and pronounce Peter Yukatil, I think is how you pronounce that. Hello, Peter. Uh, Hank Gay, Justin Shorten, and somebody who is only known as Calapigifile. Or, I, I, God, I hope I pronounced that correctly. It's clearly an alias of some kind. Um, a welcome all. Uh, thank you very much for supporting. And of course, everybody else listening, remember if you're not a patron yet, you can go to patreon.com slash thrash it out and uh, join these lovely people in supporting the show. Um, uh, I We were talking about Iron Maiden on the last episode and I wondered if Eddie was the first real metal mascot you know, yes. sort of identifiable mascot that wasn't, you know, one of the band as the front men or whatever. And, uh, sorry, forgive me, I can't remember who, but somebody on the Facebook group pointed out that, of course, I was completely overlooking Motorhead, one of my own favourite bands. <laughs> Their mascot, Snaggletooth, uh, was 1977. So, you know, not sort of, not like decades before Iron Maiden, but nevertheless, definitely predated Iron Maiden by a few years. Um, well, and that just shows that we don't we don't rehearse the show. Oh yeah, you know we do this. <laughs> this think? is you know it is live and off the cuff. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of times in the in the moment we're like, uh, yeah, this is the first of this, right? Yeah, and then it turns out no, no. If we'd actually thought about it for properly for more than two minutes, uh, I'm sure I would have remembered that. But I think that if I think that also speaks to the fact that if someone said uh, bands with mascots, your first one would be Iron Maiden. Oh, it would, you know, yeah. That would be your, yeah. so I think that it's just top of mind all the time. Yeah, I, I don't think there's, you know, it's sort of, I think, well, anyone of a certain age, certainly, uh, you know, yeah, you'd say mask, heavy metal mascot and everybody thinks of Eddie because he's so prevalent. And they've done, to their credit, such a good job of keeping Eddie as the mascot throughout the years. You know, it must have been very tempting uh, over the years at, c- at certain points of Iron Maiden's development. It must have been very tempting for them to say, yeah, should we retire Eddie? Is he a bit naff now? But well, and to- I think those covers, which I believe it's Derek Riggs that that uh, did the cover artwork through the early 90s for yeah. Maiden, it's, it's his, because of that consistency of style, I mean, just yeah, really true. dialed in on the look of Eddie. But also you get images like the Number of the Beast cover and like the Live After Death cover, which... Right. I mean, I don't know about the US, but in the UK, you could literally buy a poster of the Live After Death cover in like high street stores. Uh, I'm you know, pretty it, sure you could buy it here too. But right that, in um, like poster racks alongside, you know, things like topless women and motorbikes and <laughs> you, do you know what I mean? And soccer players yeah, and no, stuff. Absolutely, I'm literally picturing picturing the poster 
sort of rack that is still at Music Outlet in Enfield. And it's probably an even mix of both of those things now. Yeah. And Live After Death was there. It was such yeah. an iconic image. So anyway, um, uh, I also wondered about the uh, first first metal song that had a sort of semi-acoustic verses and then an electrified chorus. Um uh-huh. And, uh, and Greg Anderson suggested the only person who suggested anything was Greg Anderson, who suggested Kansas's carry on my wayward son, which ah. of course is 1976, but that's not really metal. So I'm still, I'm still wondering if that is the first proper metal song that has that transition of acoustic verse to electric chorus, uh, which is now a f- kind of a staple. And certainly ever since, I mean, fade to black is obviously the song that, you know, spread that idea around the world. And that's the one that everybody really latches onto. Sure. But, but yeah, I'd like, you know, Maiden predated it by a year. Um, but did anything predate them? As I say, I'm, you know, in terms of, cause carrying my word was on fine song, but it ain't heavy metal. So no, but I think it's, it, it, especially now that it's been so attached to the TV show, supernatural, which I'm, Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I think that a lot of metalheads like that show too. Uh, I, I think that it's almost been pulled into the sort of metal consciousness because it, it it's one right. of those songs that even though it isn't metal, metalheads will give that song the nod like, yep, that's a good one. Right. Well, a bit like um, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, you know. Which exactly. Is, which yes. is a great song and it's a good rock song. It is not heavy metal. You know, Brian, I love Brian May, bless him, but it is not a heavy metal song. But loads of metalheads love it. Partly sure. because of Wayne's World, partly because it is just a ridiculously over-the-top rock song. <laughs> yep. Um, speaking of uh, sort of metal-adjacent things, actually, just before we get to your Facebook uh, follow-up, uh, we, as we record, it's a couple of weeks since the author, Ursula K. Le Guin, died. Uh, and you and I were talking off-air about, you know, sort of books that we've read recently. And I wanted to mention, I the, the day she died, I'd been meaning to reread my um, Wizard of Earthsea trilogy copy for years anyway, just hadn't got around to it. And so the day she died, I put aside the book I was reading at the time and started reading that instead. And uh, I just want to sort of basically say to our listeners, anybody who hasn't read Ursula Le Guin stuff, but particularly the Wizard of Earthsea books, I strongly recommend you uh, go out and you know get a copy, especially now, and uh, and give it a read. Partly because there's so much in there that you know, if you're a metal fan, you probably, as we've said before, you know, you probably also like a bit of a good fantasy, and you realise how much a of modern fantasy is inspired by Wizard of Earthsea, and b how much it also rails against conventions of Tolkienite fantasy. Um, yeah, just uh, rereading it for the first time in about 20 years with modern eyes, I was like, wow, this really was like years ahead of its time and is also just a, a cracking good book. So yeah, you know, if you haven't read Ligwin before, I thoroughly recommend that you go out and give it a try because I suspect a lot of our listeners would enjoy that. Well, I am in that audience of people who has not read her before. And so I will definitely be going out and, uh, and grabbing that because I am a huge fantasy fan. You're absolutely right. We, in fact, the book I was talking about was a Ravenloft book about Lord Soth, who it's called Knight of the Black Rose, who is a character in the Dragonlance setting, which is my all-time favorite sort of fantasy setting. So, um, yes, I will be going out and picking up those books. I will add them to my pile of shame. And <laughs> I have uh, I did that whole Goodreads thing where you set the the you know that you're going to read so many books and oh and, uh, no 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 I couldn't bear doing that. <laughs> I see I. 
I usually don't either, but I, I set it modestly and my goal is to, to surpass it. So my goal was to read at least uh, two books a month. And so, so far, even though we're very young in, I'm right on pace with that. So okay, I, it, okay. it keeps me honest about that. I mean, if I, even if I don't hit it, but I'm at least reading one book a month, my, my goal is to be, um, get back into reading the way that I used to, which was that I always had a book on me. I, whenever I had free time, I would spend that yep. catching up on a chapter or something like that. And it's just so easy to get away from that. But f- when you want to write, you have to also be constantly reading. And so for me, that's a, a habit that, and I do read a lot, but not as much as I would like to. Yeah. Well, and I don't know about you, but in my experience, most metal fans are also kind of big readers. It seems to go along with the culture, you know, against the stereotype, you know, the stereotype of the metal fan obviously is like a sort of brainless meathead, but the vast majority of metal fans that I've known throughout my life are also people who read a lot. I was just thinking about that. And I, I think you were 100% correct because I, uh, we were talking off the air about how you, especially when it comes to fantasy or science fiction or whatever, you want worlds that you can immerse yourself in and that you can just sort of get lost in. And I think a lot of us also who are metalheads find that in music. And so I think mm. it's that it's that not only escapism, but it's that immersion. It's that you can put yourself in for a period of time. You can sort of be in something else. And I think that for me, that always appealed to me in terms of, you know, D&D and fantasy worlds and stuff like that, and also metal. And, and I think that's why. Right. You find the same thing in. There's a lot of connections there. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. All right. Anyway, so uh, what's been happening on the Facebook group? Uh, to this the month? Facebook page, uh, a lot of stuff <laughs> has been happening on the Facebook page. Again, if you if you have Facebook and you haven't checked it out yet, um, our Facebook group is just constantly an awesome place to find new music and to hear great discussions. There's been a lot of stuff over the past week or so about um, the upcoming final tour of Slayer, and I got my tickets for that. So it is going to be Slayer, Anthrax, Testament. Lamb of God and Behemoth Jesus. on this. To, is that insane? I mean, that is that is what the best lineup. lineup. I would say that might be better than the Big Four lineup, and I would say that it is probably, to me, at least stateside here, the biggest coming together of bands in a show like this since Clash of the Titans. Right. You know, Ozfest was great, and they had some wonderful lineups and things like that. The Big Four was a very limited run. This tour was Slayer, Lamb of God, Anthrax, and I'm so happy Testament is on this yeah, tour. Yeah, yeah. Um, because they just never get taken out with some of these bigger tours. And so I feel like they're still, even to this day, even though they're legends, completely underrated. Um, and I only caught half of Behemoth's set when I went to see Slayer and Lamb of God in Boston last year. So I'm really excited to see them as well. So for a final tour, holy freaking crap, that lineup is just absolutely insane that that tour is going to be ridiculous and tickets went so fast there was a pre-sale on blabbermouth where you could get in like a day before i mean the tickets were gone the general admission were gone in like five minutes and i in the middle of my purchase got booted from my first selection of seats and had to get the second one like they went and it was fine because the arena is fairly it's the mohegan sun in, in connecticut and the arena is small enough where there's not really bad seats in that place. Right, um, right. So I got, you know, I got decent tickets to that. But man, those tickets went fast. I just can't even imagine that place is going to be sold out. So oh, seeing yeah, yeah. Slayer for the last time with a sold out crowd, seeing Anthrax with a sold out crowd, Testament with a sold out arena crowd, like forget about it. I'm super, super stoked. And Lamb of God, um, which we'll talk about in a little while, I saw them for the first time this year and they were great in concert. So 
man, is that going to be a great show? But we also had plenty of feedback about our Iron Maiden episode. So let me just pull up a few things about that. Um, we talked a lot about in the episode about how Bruce is still a maniac on the stage. Yeah. And Stuart was saying, Bruce is very fit. I can remember fencing against him. What a claim to fame, man. <laughs> at the Essex Open, if I remember correctly, and he whooped my arse despite being 10 years older than me. I was in my late 20s and at my fittest. He said, there's my metal claim to fame. My mate is that uh, my mates is that he almost got into a fight in a pub near Canuck with Blaze Bailey to continue the maiden theme. Uh, yeah, so yeah. Uh, so there you go. That's a, that's a blast from the past connection there. Um, let's see. Phil said, listening to the episode now, I just wanted them to comment on the new T. I just wanted to comment on the new TO Patreon perks. I freaking love them. Brilliant. To be honest, I wanted to have a conversation about several albums with you guys. And the Facebook is as close as I would get. So we're getting good feedback on our Patreon perks that we have put up there. Absolutely. Uh, let me just take a moment there, actually, to mention that the uh, the first of the backstage pass shows that we're doing, where we invite one of our patrons on to be a guest, we're going to be recording that fairly soon as we record this, maybe in, you know, in a, what, about a couple of weeks' time, something like that. And our first guests, uh, we're selecting them at random from all the patrons, uh, and our first guest will be CJ Lines. Uh, who is in London. Um, and I'm not going to tell you what we'll be talking to him about, because uh, it's not really homework. We're not going to be covering it track by track, you know, as we do with albums here. But hopefully, if it's something that you guys haven't heard before, then hearing CJ talk about it, you know, might inspire you to give it a try. So, uh, yeah, look forward to that. But that's going to be literally recorded and then released, you know, maybe even the same day, because we're yep. we're not, that's not going to be sort of a, a polished show, if you like, ha ha ha, like this one is. <laughs> um, right, right, it, super, super. Uh, you do, uh, and I will say it again. You do an amazing job with the show. I rarely like to go back and listen to podcasts that I'm on. This is one of the few that I actually go back and listen to because of the work that you do after we record. Oh well, bless you, bless you. But uh, even so, it's uh, yeah. So the. Uh, backstage pass is going to be much more raw. It's literally just going to be a Skype conversation that you guys can uh, listen to. Um, but we will do those. We're not going to be doing one a month because that would be a bit too much, uh, you know. But we'll we will do them every so often, and, uh, and we'll go through the whole patron list before anybody gets you know selected twice or anything. So uh, yeah, if you are a patron, make sure that your email address that you're signed up to Patreon with is working because that is how we will get in touch with you. If that's not working, if that bounces, I'm afraid, you know, we'll just move on to somebody else. Uh, so make sure that your email address is working and look out for that soon. Uh, Stuart said about the album, having listened to the whole podcast, I can't really argue with any of your points. Gangland is the weakest song on the album, but the rest are as good as I remember from my first hearing and stand repeated replays which the album gets at least in several month intervals, uh, it's still not the Maiden album that I get the most from. That's either the first album or Peace of Mind, but a classic and absolutely changed metal. And yet, within a few years, it feels like metal had moved on to Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets, Rain and Blood, and on from there. In some ways, is Number of the Beast a bit of a transitional album? Um, I don't know whether I'd say transitional so much as massively influential. You know, without Number of the Beast... There probably is no master of puppets because, you know, Metallica have said that I mean, many times that Maiden were a huge influence on them. Sure. Um, you know, it's uh, maybe not that particular album. I don't know, but certainly Maiden has abandoned their early albums. Um, yeah, I don't know if I'd say it's transitional because that kind of implies that it's move that it's neither Nwobum nor 
thrash. Whereas, uh, but I think Number of the Beast is very new wave British heavy metal. You know, it's kind of yeah. And I think that may be what he's asking is sort of is that was that sort of the last of a of an era? Oh, maybe before That's... things sort of moved into that next phase of metal. Well, I was going to say I w- I would say it is a new album album in the same way that Master of Puppets is a thrash album. In the uh-huh. it is kind of the pinnacle of that classic thrash sound, you know. Um, and I think Number of the Beast is kind of the pinnacle of that sound that Maiden helped pioneer in the UK. Uh, Phil said, phenomenal episode about a truly great and seminal heavy metal album. Like both Anthony and Brian, I don't count uh, Number of the Beast as my favorite Iron Maiden album, but I always pick it in my most important slash most influential metal albums lists. Uh, I remember in 82 when my friends and I heard Run to the Hills and saw the video on MTV, mind-blowing. Truly did change the face of metal for a bunch of 11 and 12-year-olds in our little corner of the world in suburban San Francisco Bay Area, California. Uh, honestly, the criticism of Iron Maiden albums being inconsistent couldn't be more spot on, and probably why they never made it to quote-unquote favorite band status for me. Number of the Beast suffers from this completely. Honestly, my love of this album boils down to three tracks, Number of the Beast, Run to the Hills, and Hallowed Be Thy Name. The rest of the album is only good, in his opinion. Children of the Damned, The Prisoner is Okay, Invaders, 22 Acacia Ave, To Meh, Gangland, and Total Eclipse. For me, only their next album, Peace of Mind, didn't have a bad song on it, and that's why it's my favorite Maiden album. Hmm. Interesting. See, I would, <laughs> I could definitely disagree about Peace of Mind not having any bad tracks on it. <laughs> uh, Scott Parker Hall said, second, the Peace of Mind part, best Maiden album. Yeah, no, I know a lot of people give that as their favorite Maiden album, but, and don't get me wrong, you know, again, this is why I said about the inconsistency. Peace of Mind has, in my opinion, some absolutely great tracks on it, but and as sure. a whole album, uh, I think, you know, it does have some weak spots. So, um, by the way, how, how much do you, do I love the, you can tell a metal fan and a music obsessive in general, but a, like, especially metal fans when like, he just casually throws out, Are you, this always makes my most influential metal albums lists. <laughs> right, because we all have them. Yeah. yeah absolutely. <laughs> right. It's like required. It's like on the back of your metal fan card, there's yep. like five or six, like <laughs> like the charter of the of the metal uh, community. Like you must have a list of your, your favorite albums. You must have a list of the best guitar players. You must have a yep. list of, the, of your most important or influential <laughs> albums. Um, um, you must have the list of your guilty pleasure outside of metal album. Uh, yeah, so that's great. Let's yeah. see, uh, who else on here? Oh, Andy Larson said the raging conclusion to flight of Icarus is my favorite Iron Maiden moment of all time. Phenomenal album. Uh-huh. Uh, let's see. Kenneth said, I, so I went back and it's still my least favorite eighties Maiden album. The trooper and flight of Icarus are world-class, but the rest is okay. Uh, with the live after death version of revelations being much. So people got into listening to, uh, pretty much their entire discography yep. of Iron Maiden. <laughs> yeah, we've moved um, way beyond Number of the Beast now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Wayne said, I love Number of the Beast, but Power Slave will always be my favorite. So as you might imagine, the thread got into everybody's favorite Iron Maiden yep. album. As a thread like that will do. <laughs> as it will do. And boy, does it go on and on and on and on. Uh, Andrew said, my Maiden story. My first albums were Peace of Mind and Number of the Beast, given as dubbed tapes by my mate uh, in 84. Basically, my introduction to heavy metal I didn't actually have a tape deck of any kind in the house, so I would have to listen to them in my sister's car when it was parked in the garage. Something about the lack of accessibility really made those albums extra special to me, so I think it's basically impossible for me to form any kind of objective opinion on them. They're so tangled with a sense of who I was at the time that they maintain a kind of untouchable status, even gangland. Yeah, well, and we all have albums like that, don't we? 
Well, and that accessibility thing is so true too, right? Because not only what is, was it the accessibility of like where you can play them or or what sort of device you might have had at the time, but it was the accessibility of when you were under a certain age, there were certain albums that you couldn't buy yep. and you needed your parents to buy for you. Or, you know, for me, it's funny that he said that my first, you know, sort of purchasing of like albums on a consistent basis came from a kid at school. I was in seventh grade. He was in eighth grade and he was like the resident metalhead. And he would clearly burn copies from, you know, uh, dub copies for himself at home of cassettes. And he would come into school and he would sell his cassettes. And so I bought, I'm pretty sure I bought So Far So Good So What off of him, you know, at school. I bought, I think, Kill Em All off of him at school. And so this kid was like my hookup for heavy metal albums. And so I would just buy them off of him at school. And that's how I sort of started my cassette collection around that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that whole accessibility thing is like when you got an album... It was a rare thing, yep. and so you really treasured it. And you and I think that also informed our listening habits of why you listen to them over and over and over and over again because you didn't have anything else. A billion, <laughs> so, you didn't have a billion songs to choose from. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, like, yeah, uh, great stuff there. But yeah, man, you can uh, go back to that thread on Facebook, and there's a lot of great discussion. If you want to jump in about your favorite Maiden album or your favorite Maiden moment, um, the episode was very well received, and there was great discussion about it as usual on the Facebook page. Yep, I've got to ask you, that kid who was selling the cassettes, did he do anything fancy with the inlays? Did he try and reproduce the album covers or the band logos? Well, see, what he did instead was he would sell the originals to people at school, and he would keep the dubs for himself. Oh, you so see, he, so right. I, yeah. So I bought the actual, which uh, you know, as a salesman tactic, wonderful, right? Uh, he, uh, although in terms of like fan made stuff, I did in high school ha- commission the resident artist in our class to create for me an airbrushed Megadeth shirt. That was around the song Five Magics on Rust in Peace. So it was a one of a kind airbrushed t shirt that I got in 1992 from the artist in our class uh, for Megadeth. So yeah, and, and that, that and the fact that every show I used to go to, I would wait until after the show and I would buy the bootleg t shirts in the parking lot, which were always <laughs> that like today, people probably don't realize, but like today, the ones that you get in the parking lot are almost, uh, you know, just spot on reproductions of whatever's being sold in the arena. Back in the day, I had fluorescent green Metallica shirts. Right. They were different. You know, with the Injustice yeah, for yeah. All logo. They were completely, everybody was just sort of doing their own thing. Whereas now, it seems like the premium is to make the fakes look as good as the ones that are actually in the show. But that was not the case back in the day. Back in the day, it was white t shirts with whatever you know they wanted to print on him at the time a lot of times like the wrong band picture the wrong album cover with the tour and stuff like that which i wish i had those today because they were awesome (laughs) all right and uh as always if anybody wants to join in with the uh facebook discussion that's completely open to anyone you don't have to be a patient or anything you can go to facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out and join the conversation all right so uh let us move on to Lamb of God, to this album. Lamb of God. Yes. Now, Lamb of God for me was a band that I don't know that I came to them late, but I was never like a diehard Lamb of God fan. I would say that until this album came along, and maybe even now, but I'm, I went back and listened to uh, Ashes of the Wake, which was the album that I knew them best for. And that album is, that album came out in 2004. And when that first came out, that was when the Pantera comparisons were like super 
when you said Lamb of God, people would immediately bring up Pantera. Right. Because that was the, and back at that point, I feel like they were much closer to a Pantera sound than I think that they are now. But Ashes of the Wake is maybe their most well known album. And it was an album that kind of focused on the war in Iraq. And it was the one I think that get, sort of vaulted them into popularity. And so up until that point, that was the one album that if you said, oh, you know, what do you listen to from Leon of God? I would say that one, As the Palaces Burn, probably Sacrament, were the three that I listened to. But Sturm und Drang is the eighth album from Lamb of God. And I had kind of not fallen off from them, but I got back into them because of Chris Adler's playing on Megadeth's most recent album, Dystopia. You know, I always knew that Chris Adler was an amazing drummer, but it wasn't until I really, of course, dove into the latest Megadeth album and got to hear him that I was like, this guy's just freaking unbelievable. I need to really go back and start listening to those albums over again and get back into them. And so this one is one that I have listened to just a myriad of times. And he is sort of the driving force for me of why I have really come to love this band. Uh, okay. Okay. Now I'm, I, I'd literally never even heard of Lamb of God until uh, maybe three or four years ago. Uh, somebody, uh-huh. somebody mentioned them somewhere and I was like, Oh, you know, whatever. Um, uh, and I'd not knowingly heard any of their stuff, uh, including that album that you mentioned, like this is Ashes the, of the wake. This yep. is the only album of theirs that I have ever listened to. Uh, and I've deliberately not listened to any other albums prior to recording this. I may well go back and listen to some other albums like that because I gather that this album is a little different stylistically, a bit of an evolution of their style compared to older stuff. So I may go and listen back and listen to some of their older stuff after, but for now, this is literally the only thing of theirs I've ever heard. Um, Which is kind of cool because I think, and, and certainly when you go back and listen to those other albums, none of them will make you say like, oh, this sounds like a completely different, but it, because it doesn't. Right, I mean, right. The, but I think what they've achieved on this album is a little bit more variety than maybe some of those middle albums that they had where I thought they got kind of samey. And if I had to, you know, sort of level an, uh, a criticism against Lamb of God in general is it's that their songs can get a little samey. And so, which I don't think they suffer from as this, uh, but I'm interested to hear sort of what you think about that. But in any case, well, my, my interest then would be, and I'm not necessarily looking to, for you to answer this now, but when I go back, I'm going to be interested to see like, you're right. This album is kind of, it's, it's not samey, you know, there are, I mean, there are one or two tracks that are sort of similar to other tracks, but the album as a whole is quite varied. Um, However, in terms of my interest in it, it goes up and down accordingly. So I'm going to be very interested to see which part of this album, you know, is kind of, is the, the older albums sound more like, because if it's the bits I like, then I may well discover some, you know, favorite, some new favorite albums, but if not, (laughs) then I may not. (laughs) Sure. Well, so that'll be fun to kind of go through it. And I, I think the, the context that you, have to recognize around this album because it certainly uh, affected it is that this was the first album that lamb of god released after the manslaughter case of randy blythe which is if you have not read that story is quite a story um it is up on wikipedia there's a billion articles about it but but essentially there was an incident in may of 2010 in prague where lamb of god was playing 
And at one point, there was a concert goer who climbed up upon the stage, and Randy Blythe, who's the singer of Lamb of God, uh, pushed him off of the stage. He allegedly fell and was not caught by the other people in the crowd, hit his head, and a few weeks later died from as a result of uh, those injuries. Which I think he ultimately the diagnosis was like he died from pneumonia, but it was it was be, ended up being a result of the brain trauma. It was trauma brought that, on by yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, from the stuff that I've read, the band didn't even know about this. They didn't because at the time when the concert was happening, the the story goes that this kid got up and sort of gave the thumbs up, and people sort of continued on, and that was that was the end of that. So a couple years later, when they were coming back to the area, he was arrested by the Czech police on suspicion of manslaughter. This was in 2012. So the incident happened in May of 2010. In 2012, he gets arrested. And then he spent five weeks in jail uh, and then had to go to trial for this manslaughter case. And his contention from what I have read and and sort of seen in different articles was basically that, um, A, he's nearsighted, uh, and so he has a tough time sort of... uh, making out details uh, in terms of like one person from the other. This was a small club. This was a situation where the uh, security in the club was not great. And people on several occasions had already made their way on the stage. And there was a particular person who had already been on stage twice, had managed to get past security, had gotten up on stage. Um, At one time, it sounds like he had actually held this person down (laughs) because they were like trying to hug him and stuff like that. And so his contention was he thought that it was the same person who came up on stage this particular time that he sort of shoved off stage and um, did, you know, couldn't make out the difference that it was not the same person that had done that. So he, he felt like it was a little bit more of a threat. Um, in any case, he, he ended up sort of, it's weird. He, he ended up being acquitted where essentially the outcome was that they felt that he was morally responsible for what happened, but not criminally responsible for what happened. And they put more of the blame on the security in the venue for not stopping people from getting up on stage, you know, on a regular basis during this particular show. And so, but he ended up spending five weeks in, in jail, uh, during the course of, of this whole thing. And there's a lot of details that I'm missing and leaving out and all of that other kind of stuff. And you can go read the whole story. They go into each day of the trial on Wikipedia who testified what they said about, you know, his presence on the stage, the band members testified, like all of that kind of stuff. Um, But in any case, this happened and ended up, you know, being smack dab in the middle of when they would have been preparing for a new album. And so they had a lot of stuff going on with the band as this album then eventually started to come together. And that is certainly something that is alluded to in certain parts of this album and was absolutely an influence on this album and kind of changed not only Blythe's life, but the, the course of the band. Like there's an interview where uh, Chris Adler, the drummer was saying, you know, not only were, did the band not generate income during that time, but we ended up having to pay more than half a million dollars in legal fees and it bankrupted the entire band. There was no money left for payroll. Um, When he was acquitted, everything was on the line at that point. Either it was completely over for Lamb of God, or they had a chance to get back out there and pay their bills and get themselves back on their feet. Um, and so this was something that basically, and obviously that's a tragedy that this this kid ended up 
um, dying from this concert. So that's baggage that Blythe will have to carry around for the rest of his life. In terms of the effect on the band, it almost was the end of the band. Well, and there's the, that's the great irony, isn't it? It's like, yes, it's a tragedy uh, that this happened uh, and that the kid is dead, but don't you think the, like the last thing that kid would have wanted, regardless you know, of who is morally or criminally to blame. Don't you think the last thing he would have wanted was for the band to go bankrupt as a result of that trial? Right. Do you know what I mean? As a result of what happened to him. Uh, that's, yeah, you know, so it's understandable that, as you say, they had to kind of start financially, start again from scratch almost uh, with this band. And that is, that's got to be tough for a band who've been around at that point for, what, 15 years or something uh, and have been enormously successful. I think they've sold over two million two million albums total, which is a good amount of albums, but not the amount of albums where you have indispensable cash to right continue it's, to. It's not enough to insulate you from that sort of lawsuit without worrying correct. about the band's financial future. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and yeah, as you say, it was clearly an influence on this album. I mean, you can you can find track by track breakdowns because this album was. And again, I didn't know any of this before sort of reading up about it, but it turns out that this album, as a result of that, was so hotly anticipated by fans because for a while it had looked as if there may not be another Lamb of God album. Right. So when they said, oh no, we've recorded a new one uh, and it's coming out soon, everybody was desperately wanted to know more about it. And so you can find, yeah, loads of articles about the trial, loads of interviews with the members of the band, especially with Blythe, obviously, uh, and whole track by track breakdowns uh, from members of the band talking about the, you know, various tracks and Blythe talking about the lyrics and stuff like that. Uh, and track by track reviews from music journalists online and stuff. So this album's really been picked over by pretty much everyone uh, or was at the time of its release, I should say, because it was so highly anticipated. And I think what's interesting is I think a lot of people anticipated the album not necessarily being a concept album but completely the theme of the entire album being They thought it would be more influenced by this yes. the prison thing than it is. Yeah, cuz there's two tracks that are directly literally directly about that and then there's one track that's influenced just by his time in the Czech Republic. Um Right. And that's pretty much it. Right. I mean, certainly there's themes that weave through, you know, all, all of the songs, but at the, at the same time, like you would, I think everybody expected it not, not to necessarily be a cash in of that, but to certainly that be the theme of every song on the album. Right. No, well, and he, he'd already written a book that was the cash in. That was the, right. <laughs> you know, which he is, I've read interviews where he says like, look, my agent said, you've got to write this book, <laughs> you know, <laughs> do it now. Uh, and he did. And I gather it did sell quite well, understandably so. Which if anybody's read it, I, I'd be interested to hear, you know, what they thought of it. Yeah, me too. Cause it's, it's quite long apparently as well. And I'm like, okay, you were in there for five weeks, but you were only in there for five weeks, dude. How'd you get 500 pages out of that? <laughs> well, but also like five weeks in prison in a different country like that, you know, again, five weeks is, is five weeks, but, uh, don't get me wrong. I have, I have no doubt that it was a, you know, an intense and traumatic experience for him. I'm not trying to diminish the experience. I'm just thinking like it's 500 pages long. <laughs> <Right>. Really? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, interesting like you can't listen to this album without that context of uh of you know that being there and 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 i think just in general i don't know what their level of notoriety was prior to this situation happening but one way or the other it was press 
for the band and I think brought the band to a lot more people's attention who maybe hadn't listened to them before or you know who didn't necessarily know of them because for me Lamb of God was a band that I always knew about and I had listened to albums from but they weren't I, I didn't necessarily consider them to be like an elite band in terms of like the the sort of metal hierarchy right but in terms of touring and things like that like Lamb of God is considered to be they have a a, a huge and rabid fan base and um I think they're I don't I don't know that they get the recognition for where they're at now in the metal scene. But right. I, I certainly feel like they are pretty far up there in the metal scene. And um, I think this album was one that, because of all the context around it and because of all the anticipation around it, really kind of cemented that at the end of the day. I mean, it helps when you put out a good album that, you know, uh, sort of pays off, if you will, what the anticipation was. Um, if this had come out and been one of their more mediocre efforts, like like a couple of the previous albums to this one, I think it would have been different. But um, in general, this album was pretty well received from everything that I've read about it. Yeah, yeah, same here. Um, and in terms of them being, as you say, you know, sort of part of the the elite, um, I think part of that also just comes down to them being around so long. Yeah. Uh, you know, even in this day and age, when and we re- we've reached ages. We've discussed this before. We've reached an age now where a band has to perform live to make money. That's the only way you're going to make money, unless you are literally a pop act. Uh, you know, the only way you're going to make money is by playing live. You ain't going to get it through record sales. Um, and I think that encourages bands to maybe have a longer career than they used to when they relied entirely on uh, CD sales, for example. So, but even even with that, not that notwithstanding, to have been going for well, basically 25 years. Yeah, I mean, they've no. formed in 94 as a band called Burn the Priest and released one album under that moniker. Under that name before changing their name. But they were still essentially, they were the same exactly. band. There was no personnel yep. changes or anything. So, um, yeah, so they've been going essentially for 25 years. Uh, any band that can survive 25 years and still be putting out new music, especially, uh, I think will just almost by default enter the annals of rock history and sort of become part of the elite just by the fact that they're still here, still around and still making music because so many bands fall by the wayside after five, 10 years. Well, and it all, all it takes is one album to re-solidify your status. You yeah. know what I mean? Like if you're a band that has had a couple of misfires, all it takes is that one album to bring it back. Up, like, yes, these guys are back in, in fine form. So I think that, you know, uh, Wrath, which was 2009, and Resolution, which was 2012, were not as well received as uh, the earlier albums. You know, Sacrament was 2006, Ashes of the Wake 2004, As the Palaces Burn 2003. That was sort of the prime time for them. And then in 2012, Resolution, now they come back in 2015 with this album, and it's sort of re-solidified. Like, holy crap, yeah, these guys are pretty great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and actually, I mean, that's the other thing in this day and age, three years between albums actually isn't that long anymore. You know, it used to be, as we've said, in back in the 80s and 90s, you put out an album every year, sometimes more yep. than one album every year. Um, yep. uh, now, two years, even three years between albums is no longer, you know, that used to be cause for concern in the press. People would be like, why haven't they put out a new album yet? What's going on? Is right. are, there, are there problems in the band? Uh, but now it's just entirely normal. And I think that's partly, again, because 
everybody knows now that bands rely so much on performing live to make money. And it is difficult to write a new record when you're touring. Uh, you know, that's been many commented on and shown many times over the years. So yeah, I think it's just three years between albums, even though the reason for the gap in this case was quite unusual and, you know, kind of unique. Uh, if you didn't know that and you just looked at their output when 2012, next album, 2015, you wouldn't think anything of it. You wouldn't actually assume that something had happened to the band in that time. Right. If you're just re- reading their discography on the Wikipedia page, you're not like, hmm, well, that's an odd time yeah. jump. Yeah. No, I mean, right. they had years where they did. I think 2003, 2004, they released, you know, back to back albums, but then there was years where it was two, two and a half, you know, so it wasn't like outrageous. Yeah. Yeah. As I say, I think, and that's just become more and more common as time's gone on. Um, so yeah, I just find, find that a sort of like a funny aside that if that, if the same thing had happened in the 90s, it would have been and resulted in a three-year gap between records, it would have right. been, you know, and I'm sure the press was full of people saying, well, is this the end of the band? As You know, if nothing else, financially, as we said. Um, but also, I think fans would have looked at it and gone like, my God, it's been so long since the last album, whereas now <laughs> it's three years. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, that's normal. <laughs> well, right. And I think, as you said, because most of the time, if they're not releasing a new album, they're out on tour. And so exactly, it's not like yeah. you're not hearing or seeing right. about the band. But yeah. if the band kind of goes dark, because of a situation like this, like that is something where people are like, uh, what's what's going know, on? What's, yeah. what's going on with this band? What's the future of this band? Because yeah, you're either touring or you're in the studio getting ready to release the new album. And I almost feel like lately it's kind of, it's not going back to the way that the eighties w- was, but I feel like for some of these bands that have been around for a long time, like they're getting back in the mindset of like, we want to do a couple more albums before we retire. And so they're, they're getting back to less than two years or right at two years right, now before right. they put out that new album. And so it's not like, I, I think the, this whole time is of the essence thing is starting to creep into for some of these bands where they are getting back into the studio a little bit quicker, where as, you know, maybe five, six years, seven years before they felt like they had a little bit more time. They didn't need to rush. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. All right. So let's talk about the uh, the album specifically then. So it's, uh, as you say, 2015. There are 10 songs, 49 minutes, um, and most of them are between four and five minutes long, aren't they? It's, you know, that's pretty... Yeah, there's one six-minute song, I think. Uh, yeah, Overlord is 628, and that's by far, unless I'm missing on the last one, which I don't think so. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a good minute longer than every other song on the album. It's, uh, yes, yes. In fact, it's a minute and a half longer than most songs apart from one, yeah. Uh, there's only one song under four minutes, uh, which is Anthropoid. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, it's fairly consistent, basically between four and five minutes on average for pretty much all the tracks. Um, uh, and yeah, 50, you know, 48, 49 minutes doesn't feel, it, it goes by at a good clip. It doesn't feel like it outstays its welcome. Certainly. No, I agree. And I, I feel like it, uh, well, we'll get into those tracks, but I feel like it, it, it's got a good flow to it overall yeah um one thing i will say about the uh, the album like overall is that it kind of talking about because obviously as i say i'd never heard this band before i'd heard of them only recently but they were sort of presented to me if you like as a groove metal band um and what i found on this album was that yes you can see those elements but there are also elements of just straight up thrash yep on here as well um 
And nothing wrong with that. It does sometimes work. But it also, there are places in this album where I feel it kind of doesn't. And it feels almost like the band is fighting with itself over, is this a thrash track? Is it a groove track? We don't know. And, you know, the two halves don't sort of mesh all that well, which is ironic because I gather this is the first album where the two guitarists, instead of sitting down and writing songs separately, actually work together on every song. Um, And yet it, it feels a little bit split and feels like it doesn't quite in some places not in all but I say there are some places where it works great but there are places where i feel like it just doesn't quite meld together and it's a shame that we haven't got an album after this to compare it to to see if that would if those rough edges would have been smoothed out by you know by the next album do you know what i mean yeah and i haven't heard whether or not they are currently were i'm assuming they're working on the next album right now you oh, know they're I about to go so, on yeah. this this humongous tour over the summer. I doubt that we'll get a new album from them before that tour starts because we haven't heard, I haven't seen a lot about it at all, but I'm assuming that maybe after that tour is over, they'll finish recording the new album or something like that. Um, Yeah, I think in terms of their identity and their sound, they definitely, the the Pantera comparisons were, were very much prevalent in their early days. And I think over the course of their career, without having followed them super, super closely, that there's been times where they've tried to get away from that a little bit and yeah. they, and they sort of have changed their set, not changed their sound, but have gone in directions that people um, maybe weren't too excited about. And there has been um, conversations with Randy Blythe where he, you know, has talked about that he doesn't have an interest in continuing to scream for the rest of his career. And so I think that there are, there are times where they didn't, maybe if they weren't having an identity crisis that they certainly were trying to figure out exactly you know what yeah. their what their sound is so i think it's fu- funny that uh i mean yes you can see there are some tracks on here in fact that really did remind me of pantera but his just uh, his general vocal style uh blythe's growl actually to me sounds like chuck billy yes sounds oh, i could totally hear that way yep. more like chuck billy than uh anselmo's growl um you know the the only the times he sounds like anselmo when he's talking basically especially when he does almost his like uh deep reverse growl almost that's to me where he really sounds yes. like chuck billy absolutely yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah that really yeah. deep throated yeah yeah the parts of yeah, that that's where I'm a like, great point now i want to go listen to some more testament because that's a, <laughs> that is a great point i'm thinking like of dark roots of the earth and stuff like that exactly where, yeah 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 well that's he, a great you, point. you know i love chuck billy's voice so as soon as i heard those oh, growls, I, I was like oh oh okay <laughs> and i feel like he has good control over that you know what i mean oh, like totally, I, I feel yeah, like he yeah. switches back and forth pretty pretty well between that and um and we can talk about his clean vocals sort of yeah yeah we'll get to that uh, yeah you, you know, but i think when, everyone is clearly uh incredibly talented you know there's no question of the sort of musical ability of anyone including randy Blythe. you know the vocal abil- uh, talent and ability on this album everybody is you know are outstanding musicians i feel like this is a band where as a unit it all works but like if you just took the guitars out like i don't the guitar players are fantastic but not i mean they don't stick in my mind you know what i mean as like the uh, as like a super unique playing style or anything like that the one musician that stands out in my mind in this band is chris adler because his his drum technique is just to me sounds very different than anything else out there. Um, but outside of that, like I, I feel like these guys work really t- well together as a unit. There's a tightness to 
the overall sound that they have and the overall sort of end product that is certainly uh, made heavier in a lot of places by Blythe's singing. Um, because I don't think Adler's drums are particularly heavy. Like he doesn't hit heavy in the way that like a uh, Vinnie Apice hits heavy. You know what I mean? Like he's, his drums, he's more of a technical drummer um, in my mind, but it, together the, the wall of sound that this band can create, I would put up against anybody. There are moments in some of the songs on this album where it is just absolutely crushing. And despite some of their inconsistencies or, or maybe some of the sameness that you get um, in, in some of their middle albums, like they're, there's a level that they can bring it to in terms of just that wall of sound that is super impressive to me. Yeah. That's an interesting thought actually about, yeah, you know, whether you could take an element out and it would be by itself super distinctive. Like, I mean, you think of something like Dan Donegan from Disturbed, you know, his, you can tell his guitar playing no matter, no matter who the drummer is, you can tell it's him. Um, whereas, yeah, you're right with this. Maybe that wouldn't necessarily be the case, but uh, the uh, one, another of the sort of general issues that I have with some of this album, again, not all, sometimes it works, but there are points where it feels almost like the guitars and drums aren't in sync with one another. You're like, or they're, you know, as if they're not kind of working together and uh, almost like missed opportunities, musical missed opportunities huh. where there are par- parts where it's like, oh, if the drums were just in sync with the guitars a little bit more, uh, and I'm thinking here purely from the sort of groove perspective, um, sure. you know, the songs would work that particular song or that particular line would work much better for me. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it is, they are clearly a good unit and they work well as a unit, but in terms of the song writing, uh, on occasion, there's something missing musically. I mean, there's, there's just occasionally something missing. Um, but like I say, not always, you know, there are some places where it absolutely works. So go on then, let's get into it. So track one still echoes. To me, just a completely perfect metal song and an unbelievable opener. Like to me, this is the selling point of this album. If I want to sell someone in this album, I play them this song. This song is absolutely brutal. 
Uh, it is. Uh, and yes, it's absolutely a, a great opener, a good intro, you know, the blast beats and a good riff to open with gets into and does settle into a nice groove. Uh, the chorus is brilliant. Really, oh, really so good, dude. great, you know, catchy chorus. Um, uh, but the pre-chorus doesn't work for me at all on this song. So I, I wouldn't call it perfect. Um, I mean, you know, if you're, if you're using this song, as you say, to kind of sell an album to somebody, they're probably not going to care much about the pre-chorus, but it's, it's a shame because it's one of those things where, again, this is an example where the drums and guitars feel a little bit out of sync and the, the, the tune of the pre-chorus feels like it's got no bass. And I mean that not bass guitar. I mean like no foundation to it. It's yeah. almost like it feels a bit lost somewhere, which is a great shame because it leads into, yeah, it's got a great verse and a great chorus, but the bridge between them just isn't quite there for me, which is a shame because the rest of the song, yeah, the middle eight is good. Um, that wailing lead line to close, you know what that reminds me of? Fast Eddie Clark from Motorhead. Nice. That's a great pull. Yeah, no, that's that's a good one. It's funny you mentioned that bridge, though, because I feel like that is almost like them in some way, like taking their foot off the gas pedal before it doubles down on the chorus. Like the, the cor- like when I talk about that wall of sound that I feel like this band can create at certain points in time, to me, the chorus is a wall of sound. Oh, totally. Just, yeah. It just like comes down like an, like just a huge slamming wall that just kind of bulldozes forward. And so in some ways, like I almost feel like it sort of builds into that and then bam. And the chorus just, absolutely crushes and the and the way they do that towards the end of the song too to me is just yeah, like yeah. absolutely brutal yeah no it is it's a great chorus and I, I that's clearly the intention i just you know for me it doesn't quite achieve it you're right they are taking the foot off the gas but i, I just think there would be perhaps better ways to to a better do way it. to transition yeah, into that yeah yeah um but yeah a great chorus a good strong ending as well uh which is you know as you know i always like um and almost like the slayer-esque you know, um, little flourishes that they have in there. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of those throughout this album, actually. Yeah, yeah, there's, a, totally. there's a lot of places where, and I feel like that's kind of the groove metal influence showing is there's a lot of places where there are these guitar flourishes and accents that are kind of almost lost in the mix because they're all over the place and they're not necessarily tied to the rhythm of the you know the riff or the drums or anything but they're just there and not that the guitarist is showing off necessarily but just that yeah they're just constantly moving around as you say like slayer <laughs> yeah and it reminds me much more of slayer than like of dimebag you know what i mean like yes, it, yes. It, it definitely had to me has the 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 sort of um oddness to it that reminds me of slayer for for some reason um this song by the way is sort of a, a history of the prison where Blythe was incarcerated. And that is in the interviews where they break down each song and stuff like that. You can um, you can sort of read more about that. But basically when he's talking about people being beheaded, he was saying there's a guillotine right down the hall from where his cell was, where when the Nazis had the prison, they would just execute thousands of people at this guillotine. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty uh, Pankratch prison is the place in the Czech Republic. And yeah, it sounds pretty, I gather it's a very old prison, which is, uh, I don't know whether it's literally a thousand years old, but that's what the reference of, you know, yeah. thousand years of failure and all that is. Um, I gather it is a very, very old, you know, practically a dungeon 
uh, prison that he was in. So yeah, it does not sound like a nice place at all. <laughs> so uh, to me, like just a, a absolute punch in the face of an opening song. It is. It is. It's a, it's, a, it's a great opener. You know, even with you know the issues I have with it aside, as an opening track and as a, as you said, sort of to sell somebody on the album, yeah, absolutely achieves that. You know, and, and a, a good choice to open the album for that. Uh, so and then it moves into track two, which is Erase This. Yes, which it has more of a kind of a speed metal drum opening, and I feel like this song has more of like a Pantera groove to it than. Oh, you do know, you think? Um, yeah, I, that's. I feel like this song definitely has more of a groove to it, especially when you get into like the voice box, you know, part of it. Um, I feel like it definitely has more of a groove than the first one, which to me was much more straight ahead. Right. Yeah, the first one is definitely has much more thrash in it. I'll give you that. Yeah, um, I think that this track is one of my least favorites on the album, unfortunately. Um, I, I really like the intro, but once the song proper gets going, it just loses me. Um, and I think they would have been better served to move track three up here and have yeah. that as, as track two. Uh, and maybe I can see either that. move this to the back of the album or maybe even just lose it because, uh, yeah, it just, I don't know, it, it fails to hold my interest. Um, there's no sort of chord progression underneath all the squealing guitars in the pre chorus. Uh, the chorus itself is okay, but nothing special. The talk box, you're right. The talk box is a nice touch, but I feel like that's where the song gets at its most interesting, which yeah. again, unfortunately is three minutes into the song. Right. So, and again, they still kind of don't really do anything with it because the purpose of a talk then box, they have a solo. Well, there's that sure. But the purpose of a talk box is to articulate words while playing the guitar, you know, but Fram- you've heard Frampton comes alive, you know, everybody knows, sure, yeah. everybody knows that, you know, that's kickstart my heart from Motley Crue. Right, right. Everybody knows how the talk box works. And yet that's not what they use it for here. And I just don't, I just don't really feel it works. It's a shame. I can, uh, one thing I will agree with you on for sure is that of the first three songs, this is the weakest song, you know, by far. Right. And so it is sort of a lull in between what I consider to be two of the strongest, if not the strongest songs on the album. So yeah, it's, it's, 
it's a tough spot to hold down between those two, and it's not maybe interesting enough to to do that. Right. I mean, even if they wanted to keep five one two as the third track, there are other tracks from the back half of the album that I think are stronger than sure. this that they could have. And would have, I think, right, so here's uh, an issue. I think this song is actually too similar to the first. Even though it's a different tempo, it's a different rhythm, as you say, it's a bit more groove than the sort of, you know, almost outright thrash of the first track. Nevertheless, I don't think it's different enough. Uh, And because it's also just a bit of a weak track, I think as a result, the whole thing is, is diminished, which is, which is a shame because yeah, you know, uh, we'll get onto track three shortly, but track three is amazing. Um, and yeah, this is a, a bit of a lull. In fact, I have just found in my notes, I made a list <laughs> of, uh, talking about the pre-choruses. I really think that's like, I, I'm going to bang on about it continually throughout this because I really think one of their weakest points on this album is their pre-choruses, the bridge between the verse and the chorus. And they uh-huh. they have they have them in almost every song. Uh, and no, nothing, nothing wrong with that. But I just feel that many of them do not work. And the purpose of a pre-chorus is, you know, as you said, it's to take your foot off the gas, but it's also to build anticipation. It's to lead from the verse to the chorus. Um, and build us towards the chorus and make us sort of anticipate the chorus until it comes bang, you know, and there's the chorus. And a great pre-chorus can absolutely elevate a song, you know, a right. can, can turn a good song into a great song or a great song into, you know, a legendary song. Um, even just, and what I did was I went back through some of the albums that we've covered and picked out examples. So Pantera, Mouth for War, Think of those when he starts singing Bones in Traction, Hands Break to Hone Roy. That is such an amazing pre-chorus. And right, it's like speeding toward a brick wall. Right, but again, it takes your foot off the gas and then bang into Hold Your Mouth for the Wall, you know, like going a million miles an hour. It really builds it. Run to the Hills. Just last episode, Run to the Hills, when he starts freaking Murder for Freedom, the stab in the back, women and children and cowards attack. Right, it's like coming off a ramp yeah. when it hits the chorus, yeah. Leather Rebel. Uh, of all the, <laughs> of all the songs, Leather Rebel's awesome. It is, I know. But of all the songs for me to pick, like Leather Rebel has a fantastic pre-chorus. Start a chain reaction. See as the neon night. You know, uh, Metallica, Master of Puppets. I know we haven't done Master of Puppets, but you know, Taste Me. You will see more is all you need. These are great pre-choruses, and a lot of people don't think about the pre-chorus because it's just the bit between the riff and the chorus. But they are so important to making a great song. Uh, if you use them, you don't have to. Here's a good one. Alice in Chains' Dirt has almost no pre-choruses. I, I went back and listened to that album when I was looking for these examples, and I was like, ha, huh, this album, almost every song just goes straight from the verse to the chorus. Isn't yep. that strange? Now, we'll, we're going to talk about Dirt in a future episode, no question. If you don't pick it, I will. Um, but yeah, oh, one of us will pick it, for right. sure. So, it's on both of our lists. Yeah. <laughs> so... As I say, I don't want to bang on about it too much, but I just want to... This is why I keep bringing it up, because if you're going to have a pre-chorus, make it a good one, because it can really make or break a song. And I think, unfortunately, this track for me is one of the areas where it really... They would have been better off without it. I think you make a great point about that, and those were all excellent and I think very clear examples of pre-choruses that sort of vault you into the chorus. And so I think that's a valid criticism against... a lot of the songs on this album is that that taking the foot off the gas, if it's not building anticipation, it's just sort of taking you out of the song. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, all right. So let's move on to happier times (laughs) for me. Anyway, track three, five, one, two. 
holy crap, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this is named after the cell number he was in, uh, in that Six prison. Six bars laid across the sky, four empty walls to fill the time. One careless word, you lose your life, a grave new world awaits inside. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, lyrically, this is absolutely oh, one, of the, one of the strongest tracks on the album. Lycanthropic uh, survival instincts, embrace the beast and shun the weak. Just the whole, like, survival mentality. You could mentality read the whole song, inside, Oh, yeah, my God, dude. It's like, yeah, it's so funny. I, like, usually I pull, like, one or two lines from a song just to, to kind of use as a frame of reference, but I could copy the, every lyric from this song. And I think that, um, I don't know that he gets a lot of credit for being a decent lyricist and certainly there are songs where there are more sort of throwaway lyrics than but every band has that i feel like he's he's a pretty good lyricist yeah i definitely you know sort of above average as it were um you're right there are you know a couple of tracks on this album in in fact where you know the lyrics maybe aren't anything special but there are but there are some and this is one of them for sure where yeah, these are just these are great lyrics, oh, dude, and well just performed, the, and yeah, they, and they fit the freaking groove of this song, dude. Where just uh, when it locks into that main riff and it kind of goes down a step, oh, it's so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, and this is a good example where the guitars and drums are in sync throughout the whole song, and you can and the guitars like really for the most part it. are not like, super complicated. They're just dun 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 yep. dun, dun. You know, it, but his drums behind them are just like it's like casual blast beats, like just the you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean. Like no, I just do. The, I know exactly. His, there, there is seriously there is an elegance to the way that Chris Adler drums that it feels so effortless. Effortless yes. that it's like. He is hitting four beats where someone would hit one, it, it, but in it doesn't feel forced most of the time. It just feels like that's his, that's the groove that he's in. And it to me, it just adds like a, this whole other layer to this band. I, 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 some of the listens of this album for me are just me going through and just listening straight through to his drums the entire time, yeah. and just listening for the little changes that he makes or, or, or you know which symbol he chooses and stuff like that. And it's just uh, he's. He's definitely got sort of an artist's approach, I think, to to the drums. But the, in this song, it's just perfect. This this song is just a crushing song. Yeah. Well, and it's not difficult to go through this album and only listen to his drums because they are pretty high in the mix. <laughs> it must be said. His kick drum is probably the loudest thing in the entire mix on the album. <laughs> Which, obviously, being a fan of his, like, I'm totally okay with. Sure. <laughs> uh, to, whereas, like, if Lars did it, I'd be like, what is this shit? Get right. this out of the what mix. What are you doing? Like, yeah, yeah. Dial yeah. this back, like, ten, seven notches. I love the... Yeah, I mean, you, you're right that the riff itself is fairly simple, but nothing wrong with that. It's effective. Uh, but what you have Very. got is that lovely tritone guitar part, lead, oh, lead so part, good. over the verse as well, which obviously just sounds great. And then... Uh, and also the pre-chorus in this one, by the way, is very good. Um, but they have a post-chorus as well uh, in this song, and it's the same thing. It's the same tritone, but it's way, way up higher on the guitar neck, and the sound is almost kind of wavering. Like, you know, they're not cleanly struck. They're yes. not cleanly held. So it, it has that sort of disturbing mentality. Right, right. High stress is is yes. what I've written in my notes. It kind of it kind of stresses you out a bit because you're like, you know, it just kind of grates on you. And I'm sure that was exactly the effect. It was uh 
Yeah, it's that always on edge thing, right? Where yep. you're you're yep. you're constantly in that survival mode. You're constantly in exactly. that. You know, what is the next second going to bring? And it like this song just perfect. Like if you were going to pick a song to talk about your experience in this prison, like uh, he, it he all came it. together. Nailed it. Yeah. Absolutely nailed it. Like just. Uh, fantastic the solo is pretty good in this one as well um i mean you know it's not dime bag but then what is it's clearly you know sort of in that style um but yeah it's it's pretty good the only issue i have with the song the only thing that prevents it from being like my favorite on the album is the middle eight which is a bit uninspired again it's not nothing wrong with it it's not bad but considering everything else in the song is so good it's a shame that the middle eight isn't also excellent um and so it's not quite my favorite on the album but it, it's very very you know it's up there it's very close you know what's interesting too to bring uh to go back to the lars thing for a second is that there is this sort of uh kind of openness of the snare that mm. adler uses where it, it sort of rings out a little bit longer which is not terribly unlike what i think lars did to the extreme on saint anger but it's there if you if if you're sort of listening to it, it's just well you can hear it in the bits where it's just the drums and where sure. there's no other instrumentation sort of taking off the the decaying sound but but I think it's a good example of where you could use something like that that doesn't completely take you out of the song so I it, right so it, like I just I think there's a happy medium there and so I think you know when we talked about saying anger like that that's obviously one of the major criticism of, the, of that album but I think there is a happy medium that that could have been dialed back to that would have worked better. Do you know, it's funny, I didn't think of Lars or St. Anger at all, uh, thinking about the drum sound. What the, the Especially the snare, what it made me, what it reminded me of was Joey Jordison, Slipknot. Oh, yep. Because it's that same kind of like slightly high-pitched, slightly almost Tom-like snare, rather than the big booming snare of something like the Black Album, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, which... I think, and I don't know this because I'm not a drummer, and I'm sure somebody like Dave Richardson will correct me on this, but I think uh, a lot of drummers of this style like those kind of snares because they cut through the sound a bit more. Uh, when uh-huh. you've got so many, so much guitar in the mix, you know, like riffing away like crazy, and everything's really, really down-tuned as well, I think those slightly high-pitched snares maybe just kind of have a bit more... They attack a bit more quickly, and maybe they cut yeah. through the mix a little bit better. Um, I don't know if that's the case, but that's that's my theory. And now I have to go back and listen to Dystopia again, because I don't think that he uses that approach on that Megadeth album. Oh, interesting. So now I need to go back and listen. And maybe he did, and I just didn't. Megadeth don't play that Correct. sort of yeah that sort of style so, so i wonder if it was just something maybe just wasn't as far up in the mix because the drums wouldn't be on the megadeth album in the same way but but also because they didn't need to be yeah correct so now i need yeah. to go back and listen to that so um interesting all right yeah interesting so, stuff track four embers Side. 
featuring Chino from Deftones. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, kind of unnecessary. Oh boy, here we go. (laughs) (laughs) This is where Anthony jumps off the train here. Uh, Well, see, so we talked about how, um, you know, song two kind of was a bit of a letdown in between songs one and three. But I feel like in some ways, one, two, three were establishing for longtime Lamb of God fans that this is a Lamb of God album. Right, right. right. That this is what you, you, you're still getting what you expect from us. So one, two, three, here you go. Boom, boom, boom. You know, I think that's why that first trifecta of the album played out in the way that it did, because now is where they get into song four, where things get a little bit more experimental. Oh, wait, no, you've misunderstood. You think, no, I, I love this song. No, I love this oh. song. I'm saying Chino Marino is kind of unnecessary in this song. <laughs> oh, I thought you were saying that the experiment didn't work. Oh, no, no, I love this song. This is one of my favorites on the album. Um, oh, good. Yeah. All right, good. No, I, I well, love, then we are on the same page. I love the intro. I love that sort of cavernous, industrial-sounding effect on the yes, guitar and drums. This sort of anvil effect, yeah. which I thought was really kind of cool, almost the, the sort of grinding of gears. And then... When sort of the trugs the chugs come in, you have the the sort of galloping drum beat, which right, I think right. works it's, really well too. It's a real headbanger, yeah. Um, uh, Blythe's cadence is spot on here. One of the things he has a strange cadence in some songs where yes. he, and I'm sure it is deliberate, you know, where he kind of hangs over the edge of the line rhythmically, uh, and it doesn't. Again, for me, it doesn't always work. I think he does it a bit too much. But this song, he doesn't do that. He stays bang on the rhythm. Uh, and I really like it. I think it really works for this track. Um, the chorus is great because it is quite different to the rest of the album. It's, you know, it's creative, but it's also just great and catchy. Um, uh, I like how the, oh no, we'll get to that after the Chino bit. (laughs) Yeah, basically I I really like it up until (laughs) the bit where Chino Marino comes in. (laughs) When it becomes a Deftone song, because it becomes a Deftone song at, at partway through this, uh, about three minutes, it turns into a Deftone song, which I actually don't have a problem with. But but prior to that, like I, to me, this is one of the standout guitar lines of the album. I think just the the yeah. main riff line is just a sick, just a sick like cutting guitar line. And I, I again, I feel like this is a a showcase of Adler's complete control over tempo and everything of where you have the song dials into a groove, but then you have this almost kind of reverse of that and his like mini blasts and stuff. It's just like, it's just like so perfect. Like I I think all of that stuff works well. And then um, eventually the guitars in the verse also are full of that bit little stuff that we were just talking about where it's like, yeah, you've got a bit of chug and then suddenly you're going to go all over the fretboard. Uh, And maybe it overdoes it a little bit, but I can forgive it because the song overall is, yeah, is excellent until. (laughs) So let's talk about, let's talk about when we go full Deftones. So here's the thing. I, I think musically this section is fine and I appreciate that there is an unusual musical section as a coda to this song it fits uh but i i'm not a deftones fan and i just don't think his voice is all that great and it's kind of yeah you know just doesn't do a lot for me yeah i mean i could see obviously if you're not a deftones fan then that's not going to grab you at all and i'm not like a diehard deftones fan or anything but i do no, but, it, but i'm not like a deftones hater i don't i just right, right. i have no opinion about them really no one way or the other 
I just liked that it was such a contrast to, you know, what you normally get from Blythe that I thought that sort of melded together kind of well. And I do like the the way this song outros because it is very Deftones. Like it it basically does morph into a Deftones song, you know, sort of by the end of it with the rolling bass line and, and drums and stuff like that. I, I like love the, that. That's the thing oh, I was going to so get good, to. Dude. Yeah, I love how the bass comes in by itself to close us out after his section. Uh, it's almost like their high five to him for being part of the song. Like, dude, we're, we're giving you a nod on the way out. Like we're as this morphs into a a Deftones song. So I really dug that. And I read an interview with the bassist where he wasn't even present when Chino did his vocals. Uh, but I read the same interview, but he was super stoked about the fact that Chino had done them. So, uh, totally dude. Yeah. But I, I think the, especially in this genre and because you've, you know, in this sort of down, the modern down tuned style, the bass often gets lost. It's very easy to lose the sound of the bass in the mix. I mean, Rex Brown, you could hardly hear him most of the time until Dimebag started doing a solo. And then you were like, oh, no, actually, I've been listening to Rex the whole time. I just didn't realize it. Yeah, um, and he's freaking awesome. Right. So it's nice to hear the bass have the spotlight put on it, as it were. Yep. Uh, mixing my metaphors there. Um, you know, at the end of the song, just so that you can, yeah, hear it and pick it out and go, yeah, that's pretty good. So, yes, and as I say, I, I, apart from the last 30 seconds or so, uh, I really did like that song. Um, so move on to track five, Footprints. Which I am not so keen on. <laughs> yeah, I think we're in the same boat on this one. This actually even more so than um, Erase This. I I feel like it doesn't do enough to immediately stand out. Again, if I had to point to one thing, it's the drums for me that, that stand out on this song. Um, it does get catchy in parts like, you know, how the fuck did you think this would end? Yeah. That there are some hooks in there that I think are catchy, but overall it feels like a five spot song. Yeah. The, the chorus saves it for sure. Um, yeah. the, the guitars in the chorus are really good. Uh, and it's, yeah, you know, it's well done, but the rest of it, which is a shame because lyrically, uh, it's, it's quite an interesting concept. It's apparently about, uh, when Blythe was writing the lyrics for this album, he was living on the beach. I gather that he, he travels around a lot and lives in lots of different places and he was living on a beach, uh, and was just basically disgusted at the behavior of tourists. Yeah. 
uh, <laughs> you know, like ruining this. They come here to look at this beautiful land and then they just ruin it by dropping litter everywhere and, you know, uh, churning it up. So right. it's about carbon footprints. Right, right. That's it. Yeah, yeah. So an interesting concept for a song, not really an obvious uh, thing you'd expect a metal band to sing about. But I really no, like it's that. It's an anti-vacationer song. Right. <laughs> <laughs> which is, I mean, which is funny because you know you look at some of the themes that he's hitting on some of the other songs, and and then you sort of look at the inspiration for this song, and you're like, huh, it is. I, I guess it comes from everywhere. It really does, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's it's, and but the thing is. I'm completely on the same page as him. Like, you know, I agree almost completely oh, with his outlook. So it's just a shame that this song, for me personally, you know, that this song isn't better. Dude, it's funny that you mentioned that. And as we get into the back half of this album, I feel like uh, I was saying to myself this morning, because I listened to this through at the gym again this morning. And on the way home, I'm like, you know, I really appreciate that this album gives me a lot of stuff to get pissed off about <laughs> and, and sort of get behind. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it, yeah. for the most part, like... I'm on board with all this stuff. Like there is an element to metal like that. Yeah, it's cathartic because they're pissed off about the same things that you're pissed off about. And it's like, you know, the older that you get, that level of frustration, I think, isn't always there. And then every once in a while, like something will really tap into that. And there are songs on this album where I'm like, yeah, fuck fuck those vacationers, man. Like, come on. <laughs> yeah, or the, specifically the stuff about the media that he gets into on, oh, the, yeah. on the back yeah, half yeah. of this album. Like, like it's something you can really sink your teeth into and be like, yeah, that is bullshit. And I kind of like that. It's like I said, uh, and I think I mentioned this in the Linkin Park episode to justify, you know, Linkin Park being metal, uh, you know, Metal, and this is a this is a, a rather gender specific view. I will admit that you know this is a, a theory that I formed many many years ago. Um, nevertheless, the theory has always gone for me that young men uh, playing very loud guitars and shouting about how angry they are at the world—that's heavy metal. Yep, that to me is the definition of heavy metal. And that is notice nothing to do with genre or style or speed or or even lyrical content other than being angry at the world. And yeah, this song is very angry at the world <laughs> yeah absolutely so track six overlord You got your acoustic opening. You've got your clean singing. Um, I feel like this is in a great spot on the album because it's kind of a palate cleanser for or a 
you know, kind of a breather until you get into the back half of the album. Although at about three minutes into this song, it becomes brutal. Oh yeah. Yeah. But until we get there, um, it reminds me very much of Alice in Chains. Oh, interesting. And then, and then overall taking the whole song as a package, it reminds me very much of black label society, which often reminds me of Alice in Chains. So to me, it's like a, it feels like a, like it could be a black label society song. And it might be just because I've been listening to Zach's newest album lately, but it definitely had that vibe to me of where, um, and I think the, the chorus, you will destroy you distorted tore yourself into your will absorbs you. You can't ignore you anymore. Like this, this song, I I like a lot of the lyrics on too. Well, and that, that chorus could have come straight out of Lane Staley's notebook. Oh, for uh, sure, right? You know. Yeah, yeah. Do you know, I hadn't even thought of that, but now that you've said it, you're absolutely right. I was thinking, uh, this reminds me in some places of Testament's ballads, actually. You know what? I will hear that and and agree with that as well. Yeah, but you're right that the Alison Ch- there's definitely an Alice in Chains thing there as well, and more so in the chorus uh, than, you know, more Alice in Chains than Testament, if you want to sort of make a comparison of the two. Um, apparently this was controversial, that he's doing clean vocals on this is this well, again, was, I think was this literally the first whole, track where he'd done that i don't know if it was the first one that he did that but he's a pretty decent singer that's and the I, thing like, he does a really good job i like yeah. i like it why would people complain <laughs> I, it's just because you know it's you, you you like the flavor you like man but like to me again the reason we're talking about this album on this episode of the show is because of songs like this. I felt like if we were going to talk about a Lamb of God album, that having one that shows a little bit of variety that combats the reputation of sameness that I think they get sometimes, right. to me, is what makes this album stand out from the rest of their album. So, And again, he's a good singer. So to have a singer that has the ability to, um, and you, you, know, you mentioned Chuck Billy before, but to have a singer that has the ability to do different things yeah. on an album and give you different looks on an album is something that a lot of bands don't have the luxury of being able to do. Yep. And so why not take advantage of it? Why not switch it up? And especially at the sixth spot in a 10 song album, because you're at the point where if it was the same, the same, the same, the same, the same, you'd get fatigued over the course of an, it can wear you down over the course of an album. So to me, like this is perfect spot for this song I think that it's a it's a really good song, and I love the way that it gets brutal as we get to the back half of the song. Yeah, I mean Chuck Billy's clean voice is just beautiful. You know, he's, absolutely, absolutely a wonderful, wonderful singer. You just made me think. Hang on, I'm just looking up. Where was? Oh no, okay, I was just looking up "Good Friends" and "A Bottle of Pills" on um, "Far Beyond Driven" to see where that that's track five of twelve. So yep. uh, slightly different placement on the album, but it's the same sort of, it, you, what you said reminded me that it's, it has that same sort of effect of, you know, Far Beyond Driven is an album that would be absolutely just punishingly brutal from start to finish if there wasn't something like that track in the middle to just give you a bit of a breather. Uh, and, and some people don't want that, but for me, I do I do appreciate yeah. that. I do appreciate that, appreciate that bit of a breather before we, because when you when it's just in your face the entire time it can you get desensitized to it you know and you yes. can lose the appreciation for some of the brutality there when you pull off just a little bit and you give me a breather and then you come back brutal again it reminds me of like yeah 
Like that hits me harder. Yep. Right. Exactly. You know, the whole no, no light without the darkness and yes, all that. Um, totally. Uh, I, there was, um, I think it might've been in a Rolling Stone piece. I'm not sure where I got it from, but I, I copied and pasted it. Um, a statement from Randy Blythe talking about this track where he says, quote, I figure we're about eight records deep at this point. So if I want to try my hand at some clean singing, I can. End quote. Lamb of God frontman Randy Blythe says bluntly of Overlord, a moody, moody new track the group premiered today on its website. Uh, quote again, there are a lot of people that are going to be mad about it, but fuck them. <laughs> well, and here's the thing about that, dude. I am 100% behind that sentiment. <laughs> if you don't allow that kind of stuff from your favorite band, then what you're basically saying to Randy Blythe is go form a side band where you can indulge right. that part of your creative side. And that's going to take away from your main projects. That's why you have your, uh, is it Stone Sour versus uh, yep. sort of Slipknot yeah, stuff? Yeah. Like, if I can't do it in the band that I want to do it in, I'm going to go find someplace to do it. Because that that urge to create that isn't going away. Yeah, It's just going to be indulged in a different venue. So to me, to have him take one or two songs on a Lamb of God record and be a little bit experimental when he's delivering the brutality on eight out of ten tracks. And again, this song gets there. You know, at three minutes, oh, it yeah. turns into, you know, a regular song. Like, dude, go for it, especially when you can sing. Yeah. Uh, just to note that the Stone Sour situation is actually slightly different because Stone Sour existed before Slipknot, or at least rather, I should say that um, Corey Taylor and Jim Root were both in Stone Sour before they joined Slipknot. Uh, and then they put Stone Sour on hiatus and then... Once Slipknot well, blew so up. So it's and, the other way around then. Right. They the, didn't let him scream enough in Stone Sour, so he went into Slipknot. No, I think it's more that Stone Sour just weren't successful enough, whereas they may, could maybe see that Slipknot were going to be big. Um, but yeah, so it's a slightly different situation, but you're totally right. And we've talked about this, uh, you know, the need to sometimes do side projects to express something that doesn't fit into the main band, you know, and that's, a, I think, a healthy thing for a lot of bands. I, I think this one, it has some lovely vocal melodies. Uh, has a great pre-chorus that leads to an equally great chorus. Uh, those, the rising semitone chords in the chorus are completely unoriginal. Like I've heard them in so many songs, but they work. They are exactly right for this song. And for me, that is more important, you know, than being different for the sake of it. The, even the solo, I even like the guitar solo on this one. Uh, the middle eight works. Which is probably the most generic solo on the album. Uh, probably uh, yeah yeah but, but, it, you're but right. again it works, it, it for the works. Songs. Yeah. yeah uh and then the middle eight leads up to that really fast section as you say where it suddenly gets really brutal dude and then it slows down and it again like, yes. plays out a slow jam of that riff yep. which is just absolutely megaton heavy it really is it really is the only criticism i have of this song is that when it comes out of the fast section back into the slow bit for the final chorus uh it, there's something not quite right there for me. Like it takes a little bit too long or, uh, or maybe it doesn't take long enough. There's just, you know, that, that could do with another pass, but that's literally my only criticism of this song. And so this may surprise you, but this actually is my favorite song on the album. I really, wow, nice. really love this song. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a very well-rounded song and shows the array of, t- of what they can do. So I think, you know, in that way, if you, if you wanted to show the range of this band, then this would be a great example of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so track seven is Anthropoid. (laughs) 
which is about a Reinhard Heydrich, who was the architect of the final solution during World War II, World War II, and this was about a group of Czech-born British-trained paratroopers who carried out the only successful assassination attempt on a high-ranking Nazi official. And so this is sort of his uh, his homage to that group who yeah. went and took out this monster. Yep. Uh, and you can tell, I mean, you can see all of that in the lyrics. Uh, I like the fact that this one goes straight in. There's no intro, just bang straight into the song. Um, the, uh, the, unfortunately the sort of the rest of it again, it is not quite working for me. Another poor pre-chorus. The chorus is okay. Um, but not really anything to, you know, sort of shout about. Uh, and then, but the post-chorus is nice. There's a nice bit of guitar there and this is another this is a perfect example of the drum guitar dichotomy thing that i'm talking about there's if you remember in the chorus in this in the middle of the chorus line there's a couple of accent notes on the guitar and like on every line and they are perfectly placed for some matching emphasis on the drums but instead it doesn't the drums just keep going you know the same as the rest of the line yeah uh, and I think that's, that's what I mean about sort of missed opportunities. Cause I'm thinking back to, uh, and you know, maybe not the first band that you'd think of like to compare this album to, but, uh, Entombed's album Wolverine Blues, which was the album that really sort of cemented them as the kind of rock and roll death metal, you know, band, uh, death and roll as they call it now. Um, and one of the innovations of that album was the drums and the fact that they weren't playing blast beats a million miles an hour or rather they were, but then they would also groove out. And the drums on that album are so in sync with the guitars and have so many little accents and flourishes and emphasis that match what the guitars are doing. And that's why it achieves that feeling of real groove, even though it is heavy as fuck. And yeah, you know, it's kind of, I think in a, in places that's missing from this album and you know yeah. I, probably a deliberate choice I'm sure Chris Adler is perfectly capable of doing that of course he is if he wanted to but yeah talking about the songwriting I think that's an element of the songwriting that I think is occasionally lacking which is uh, a real shame um, because I, th- I think that, you know again the chorus it would have really elevated it I do however really like the middle eight that relentless chugging in the middle eight in this one well, and the way this song closes with the anthemic, we are, yes. I live, I fight, I die. Like just, you know, it, it all sort of comes together at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And the story, as I was re- I read the same thing that you did about like, you know, what this song's about. And the whole time I was reading it, I was just thinking, this is a screenplay waiting to be written. How is, Dude, how is this not a movie? <laughs> I think that creator on their new album did a song about this guy and about that situation as well oh really and i think they did a video of it wow uh and i can't remember the name of the title off the top of my head i'll i'll look at it because that, that as i was reading the story for this i was like wait a second didn't creator also do this on their latest album i'll have to look at it though but i'm pretty sure they did but yeah if that's like the only assassination of a high-ranking nazi throughout the entire war that's surely surely that's worth you know, filming, <laughs> making a, right. If someone hasn't done it already, yeah, yeah. I was the whole time I was thinking, should I be taking notes? I feel, I feel like maybe I should write this. <laughs> right there, you go. Um, all right, so uh, track eight, engage the fear machine.
love this song. Yeah. Yeah. It's got the groove. It's got the build with the snare drum. Um, It's got some great lyrics. Paranoia writes the checks strung out like a marionette. Business as usual. We're bringing you disaster and high def. Yeah. You know, just the idea that there's so many manufactured uh, panics by the media that you become completely desensitized to what's actually really happening in the world because their job is to just keep you feeling like the world is going to end tonight. Yeah. Just uh, it's great uh, stuff. It, this is a great song. And uh, yes, I, I, I agree once again that, you know, I'm 100% behind the sentiment of the lyrics. I love the uh, the chorus riff uh, in this. It is fantastic. Um, and again, another good pre-chorus in this one. Um, the solo is pretty good. Uh, yep. I love the percussive way that it comes back to the chorus with those stop-start beats. That's really nice. You know, we, I wish there was a bit more of that sort of thing on this album, actually. Um, yeah, great verse, great chorus, great lyrics. Just a really, really good song. Yeah, which again, I mean, after you get that breather of song six with Overlord, you get two, you know, one, that the, the Anthropoid is really a, a straight-ahead, just brutal song. Yeah. This one is a little bit more of a groove to it, but, you know, it was coming out of that little break that was Overlord, you got two really solid songs. Yeah. Oh, I think this this one's really groovy. This is like, you know, this is one of the most groove metal tracks on this album, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah, and, and yeah, I really, really like it. Uh, so, track nine, Delusion Pandemic. song to me it's it's obviously he said it's about how the internet is a useful tool and you can use it to learn but it's also created a creatively stifled environment it's like his anti-meme song right like stop (laughs) stop wasting all of your lives just basically turning into sheep looking at cat videos and regurgitating what other people have done yeah yeah well right because basically you're we're all dying now. <laughs> like it's about time, like snap out of it. The world is, you know, basically going to crash and burn now. Uh, some great lyrics in here, a generation of mockingbirds, you are being herded by the wolves, a generation of mockingbirds feeding yourself to the wolves, just the obsession with technology and the, and again, not having original thought, not thinking for yourself, not creating for yourself. Um, and the, the title delusion pandemic, 
That's pretty great. It is. It's a pretty good title, yeah. Uh, great intro as well on this track. Oh, yes. Um, yep. Yeah. This is one that, I, even though it's like, you know, last but one on the album, I would have stuck this maybe at track two. This is one that could go right at the start of the album. I think it's it's good enough and strong enough. Well, especially when you have the sink or swim, you know, right. where he's just screaming it over and over again. And that's one of my favorite parts of this track. I love so good. that breakdown. I mean, it is a very, you know, it's a cliche. It's very me. It's very new metal sort of uh, totally. modern metal breakdown stuff. But it works. It works, yeah, it works so, so good, dude. well. And him, yeah, shouting sink or swim over it. It's really catchy. Uh, and the fact that they then, you know, continue using it as, to go out on the song. Yeah. And just the riff behind it where it's ba-dam, 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 like so good. Yeah, really, really good. Um the uh, the tragedy in the chorus here is that it actually does what I've been talking about in so many other songs. There's on each of the guitar single note flourishes, there is a cymbal hit, but it is mixed so low that I literally didn't notice it until I was listening to this on headphones. <laughs> I hope you're sending these notes to these guys that are, I know. When they're working on their new album. I like, know, hey, I take know. advantage of these opportunities. I know. Like, I mean, like, like those guys need to listen to me. It's, you know, ridiculous. But, but that's what's so awesome about having these discussions and also about like giving an album, album like several listens and stuff like that as we get ready for one of these episodes is that the stuff that you pick out and the stuff that I pick out are going to be different. The stuff that uh, sort of come out as musical themes to you, to your musician's ear, are going to be different than what than what I hear as sort of my, you know, untrained ear. And, uh, and I just love that. It makes for great discussion. It does. Yeah. I mean, I should emphasize I am untrained myself, you know, it's, uh, but the, di- the difference is it's more sort of just because I've written so many songs, you know, sure. and, and played music for, for years that, yeah, I just kind of, I can't help but think, Oh, if only you did that, if only you did this, you know? Um, but then every album would sound the same cause they'd all sound like I wanted them to. And that's no fun. So <laughs> track 10, Torches. Featuring Greg Besido, I am going to guess is how you say his last name, from Dillinger Escape Plan, which is not, I mean, I know of them, but I'm not like a a huge uh, fan of that band. But I do like in this song how you have sort of the spoken and sung lyrics that are almost overlapping with one another, but not directly overlapping. They're almost, it's almost like a call and answer thing, but it's it's kind of simultaneously happening. I do like that effect. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I, I assumed it was pronounced Greg Pusciato, but I, I, I could be completely wrong. Could be Pachato or who knows. Um, 
well, I'm sure somebody who's heard him say it knows, but I don't. Uh, I think his, in contrast to Chino, I think his vocals here are really well used and really suit the track and elevate the track. And yeah, I agree with you. I think the way that they almost overlap, but not quite with Blythe's spoken bits work really well. I think this is actually probably the most Pantera sounding track on the album. Um, uh, you might be right. It's, uh, I think. It, yeah, you know what? You might be right. I, I think it kind of, it actually reminds me a little, the intro reminds me a little of Good Friends and a Bottle of Pills. Um, uh, is that the one I'm thinking of? Or m- maybe, anyway. But yeah, it does sound quite Pantera-ish, but, you know, that's no bad thing. Um, this one is, uh, the one that I mentioned was inspired by uh, Czech Republic history while he was there. Nothing to do with the prison, but while he was there, right. he found out about uh, a national hero, Jan Palak, who self-immolated, like burned himself in protest in uh, Wenceslas Square in Prague in 1969 to protest the occupation of Soviet forces. Um, And Blythe just read about him while he was in prison and uh, was fascinated by the idea that somebody would be so annoyed and upset by something that they would literally set fire to themselves in protest. uh, And apparently it worked. You know, he really rallied a whole cultural anti-Soviet movement built and rallied around Jan Palak as a result of, uh, and his sacrifice, his martyrdom, if you like, uh, as a result of what he did. So it did work. But also, yeah, just a fascinating subject matter. Um, well, just the lyric, I am Inferno, I am Legion. Yeah. You know, kind of what he did and and what came out of it. Yeah. Uh, well, and they that bit in them right in the middle of the song as well. I like how that builds and you've got sort of it breaks into a halftime breakdown, then goes double time for the solo, and then back to halftime with vocals again. It's a nice up and down, you know, sort of it carries the whole song through to the final refrain. Um, yeah. Yeah, in a, but in a varied manner. It's not just one note all the way through. And so, yeah, I, I like this one. Oh, you know, not a favorite on the album, but definitely one of the, you know, in the top half of the album for me and a really good track to finish on. And kind of a contemplative song to end on that, you know, stays in your head. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. like, I think it's a good spot in the 10 spot. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. So, yeah. So overall, I mean, basically, as I say, I, I did like it. I know I've had my criticisms, but I would say this album is like, you know, 75% there for me. Um, uh, you know, I, I would certainly listen. I will, I'm sure, listen to it again. And it's intrigued me enough as I say, I now want to go back and listen to some earlier Lamb of God to see if the bits I like on this album are, you know, more what they used to do on their earlier albums. Um, and, you know, therefore see, maybe I will, even if they're a bit more samey, if the stuff they're doing is the stuff I like, yeah. then maybe I would actually prefer those albums. Oh, and I can guarantee you that over those albums, you will find at least an album or two's worth of tracks that you will very much enjoy you know what i mean yeah. so like they're definitely uh and i will say as we as i just touch on really quickly i saw them in july of 2017 for the first time they are fantastic live great live band uh blythe sounds great live the rest of the band sounds amazing live uh they put on a great show when i saw them they played three songs off, off this album they played five one two they played engage the fear machine and they played uh still echoes were the three that they played off of this album. And and this album makes me super excited for what they're going to do next, because I hope that the overall critical response to this album and the fact that it seems like it was a pretty successful album for them 
uh, leads them to continue down this road because I think this this variety that they have on this album is uh, something that they should continue to explore. I, I would agree with that one hundred percent. Yeah, um, I'm impressed to hear that uh, that Blythe is just as good live because this is oh, dude, not is. this is not an easy vocal style to pull off live <laughs> you know no and uh you know again i think they played 10 songs when i saw them open for slayer and i would imagine that their set is going to be similar you know give or take maybe a couple extra songs because it looks like they're in the spot right before slayer on the, they're the second um right, headliner right. here so uh but yeah I so mean, they'll probably they, get like they put on a great show probably get like a 40 45 minute set or something yeah yeah so, so I would say they're going to play around ten songs. I'm not sure what the set list will look like, but uh, in that situation, when they opened for Slayer last time, they were great start to finish. Mm. Yeah, as I, I would, uh, you know, I, I, I want to hear more certainly from this uh, from this band. So, and if I had the opportunity to see them, I would certainly take it because, yeah, as you said, as I said earlier, they are all clearly fantastic musicians. And so to hear that they are also really good live is encouraging. Yep. All right. So uh, homework coming up. Before we get to that, let's just remind everyone and say thanks for listening. Uh, And remember, if you enjoy the show, please spread the word. Tell your friends, rate us on iTunes and Google Play Podcast Store, whatever it's called. Uh, Aren't they changing the name of that again? I don't know. I think they were calling it Apple Podcast. They didn't want it iTunes anymore. Oh, no, I'm in the the Google one. You're right. Apple have changed it now. It's Apple Podcasts. You're right. But Google keep changing the name of theirs as well. It's Anyway, you know what I mean. Go and find it and give us a star rating. Uh, And of course... Of course, as always, you can support us directly at patreon.com slash thrash it out, where even if you're a patron, I would encourage you to go and have a look because we've remade our Patreon intro video uh, to match these new patron perks. And uh, it is a wonderfully low budget affair. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. Indeed. If you want to get in touch, go to thrashitoutpodcast.com for links to email and Twitter. Uh, and of course, as I said before, you can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. So homework next week and uh, next week. Good Lord. No, not next week. Next episode. Well, I'll be listening to it by next week. That's for <laughs> yeah. sure. Uh, possibly the last episode of this volume. Uh, we'll see. Um, but regardless, uh, track 11 next episode is going to be, are you ready? Remember, this is my whole theme of, uh, you know, albums that change metal. Neurosis, their album Through Silver in Blood. I have never heard it, so I am now very excited. Does not surprise me that you've never heard it at all. Uh, It is basically the album that kick-started the modern post-metal style and movement. Um, uh, Because Neurosis started out as a hardcore band, uh, and then over the course of their first few albums, they... Became, they started experimenting and basically by the t- when they got to Through Silver and Blood basically became a full-on post-metal, post-rock band uh, and had uh, had a massive influence on music in general, but especially that sort of part of the metal scene. So yes, I'm looking forward to talking about that one. And I know that we have some Neurosis fans like me out there uh, in the audience um, who will be looking forward to this. So th- there you go, guys. I've thrown you a word. <laughs> awesome, man. All right, so until then, everyone, keep thrashing, take care, and we'll see you next time. See you guys later.